All right, everybody, welcome back to the Rehumanized Podcast. It's happening. Um, Roe v. Wade's coming down, or at least it looks like it. No guests today, just going to be me and Emiliano. I'm Herb here, as always. Um, we have a lot to talk about. When was the last time we recorded? Um, I think it's before I went on Easter break, right? Okay. Yeah, or right after I came back. I don't know. I have, like, no conception of time anymore. That's all right. Um, but, yeah, no, the... the there, obviously, there's been a whole lot happening in the whole world, but I think the biggest piece of news is the leaked uh, draft of the Dobbs decision um, by Politico like two weeks ago. Um, I Time has been totally at a standstill for me since that's happened. I have, have no idea how long it's been. I think it's been about two weeks since record, since we are have been recording this. Um and yeah, so I mean, if you somehow follow Rehumanize and haven't heard, um, there's been a draft of what looks to be the um, Supreme Court's decision, the majority opinion in the Dobbs v. Jackson case, which for a while we've been saying has the potential to overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, and the majority of justices, as of May 2nd, um, have ruled in favor of overturning Roe and upholding the 15-week ban. Have you read uh, the the opinion? And it's a super majority, right? It was six three, not five four, right? I wait, I'm pulling it up now because I couldn't I couldn't remember who who signed on to it. Um, no, as of the the leak, it was only Thomas Gorsuch, Kavanaugh, and Coney Barrett and Alito. Um, Roberts hadn't signed on, but it wasn't, we, we still don't know. We only have the draft of the opinion. Right. We don't know if he is concurring or joining a dissenting or doing something else that's funky, or if he just hasn't decided yet and he's going to sign on to the majority. Um, obviously it wasn't supposed to come out. And so we, uh, we don't exactly know. We know that, the justices can change their mind up until the the day that it's released, that this is supposed to be sort of a long process of editing these drafts. Um, so we, we have no reason to believe that the final, that what has been published is the total final draft. Um, but if it is what is going to be released uh, as the official opinion, it rocks. To answer your question, yes, I, I read most of it. Um, I'm not, a legal scholar, but luckily my girlfriend is a law student um, and she has read the entire document. And the, that first night that it really, it was released, she read the entire thing and was pulling out important quotes for me. Um, and so that was extremely helpful to understand exactly what was going on because I read the political argument and basically the, the messages, the uh, Roe v. Wade was egregiously wrong from the start and 
it's coming down and this 15 week ban is constitutional, um, which of course will open the gates to banning abortion, um, in other ways and earlier in gestation um, because we no longer have the, um, the precedent of Roe upholding the imaginary constitutional right to abortion. But yes, I've read most of it, um, but a lot of the kind of footnotes, I'm like, uh, this is all legal jargon. I don't fully need to understand because I'm not a constitutional lawyer. Um, but yeah, what I've read, I, I like, I'm excited. Seems good. Yeah, um, I read probably like 20 pages of it um, and like on Facebook in kind of like the the week afterwards or not just Facebook. I'm not really on Facebook a lot um, and the social medias. Uh, there were like some several kind of like pro-choice people um, citing some of the the language used in the decisions as kind of uh like apocalyptic uh like harbinger of what's to come for other rights like uh that were established by privacy so either lgbt rights or or rights to uh birth control or something like that um like things established by Griswold in other cases. Um, what do you make of those kind of interpretations that like, Oh, the, this, this document that came out are setting up to just like knock down like a whole other slew of anything that has to do with privacy is going to get overturned now. Yeah. So I think that, I, when I first saw kind of the uproar about that from um, a lot of pundits, I was also concerned because at that point I hadn't read the decision yet. That, that actual Monday night, I, um, I happened to already be in DC for other events. And um, so when it was released, the, the people I was with and some other people from Rehumanize and um, partner organizations were outside the court within the hour um, demonstrating. And by the time we were there, I think the article came out at like 8.30 and we were there by 9.30 and there was already hundreds of people demonstrating, almost all pro-abortion. Um, I think that a lot of people just heard the news and immediately wanted to protest and the pro-life movement had not come together yet. Um, so it was it really was just kind of us out there at the Supreme Court. Um, and so I, I did not have time that night to actually read the opinion. And so that next day, um, I also saw a lot of that, like, Alito's coming for all of our rights there. It's, it's not just abortion, um, though we know there is no right to an abortion. There's no right to take the life of another human being. However, because of the sort of um, political movement that has uh, championed the rights of the unborn. Um, I think people had some legitimate concerns about other rights um, that some people claim did build off of um, decisions like Griswold and Roe and Casey. Um, and so like at Rehumanize International, we don't really take official positions on things outside of issues of aggressive violence. And so um you know, in our capacity as an organization, we don't really um, take strong positions on things like birth control or LGBT privacy rights. Um, Just as an individual, people. 
yeah, just don't hurt people. Um, but as an individual, you know, I have political positions outside of the the mission of Rehumanize International, and so I was concerned about the kind of the the claims that um, the draft decision seems to be gearing up to come after other rights, um, particularly um, LGBT rights that were determined in um, like Lawrence and Obergefell um, in terms of like, you know, same sex sexual relationships and marriage. Um, And so I think like if I spent a couple hours being like, Oh no, should I be concerned about this opinion? Like should, should I actually, you know, you know, advocate, you know, there's not much to do for the Supreme court. They're not, they're, they're an unelected body. Um, so you just kind of have to hope that they do what you want. Um, but I, I did share those concerns, but once I actually read most of the opinion, um, I, I, it's, it's hard for me to really see it that way that the Supreme court is coming after, other privacy rights. Um, I mean, in Alito's to opinion, me the document he, seemed like very, very like specific about like Roe versus Wade and abortion. Yeah. I mean, let, let me pull up some of it because I think that Alito in the draft goes out of his way to be very, very explicit that this is only about abortion um, in his discussion of privacy rights. Let me pull up the quote. Um, Here it is. This is from the opinion. Rose defenders characterize the abortion right as similar to the rights recognized in past decisions involving matters such as intimate sexual relations, contraception, and marriage. But abortion is fundamentally different, as both Roe and Casey acknowledge, because it destroys what those decisions called fetal human life and what the law now before us, referring to the Mississippi law, describes as an unborn human being. At further distinguishing abortion from same-sex marriage, um, Alito says, none of the other decisions cited by Rowan Casey involved the critical moral question posed by abortion. Um, and then he goes on to say that, therefore, these are um, unrelated and do not take what we are saying about um there not being a privacy right to dismember a baby to mean that other privacy rights are non-existent. Um, in general, I mean, I'm not a constitutional lawyer. I know that a lot of people have, you know, even like LGBT affirming um, or LGBT people um, ha- have sort of said like, actually these decisions that we have, like trying to base them on um, the privacy rights that were established in decisions like Roe, um, are actually not great legal precedent anyway, because a lot of no, these privacy rights not. People have always said like, this doesn't, it, 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 maybe I support the ruling like plenty for 50 years, pro-abortion and pro-choice legal scholars have been saying like, no, I think abortion should be legal, but the this constitutional, a <laughs> like a bad, pro- badly determined decision. Exactly. Um, and people, you know, sort of on all sides of the, the issue have said similar things about Obergefell. Um, and so I, I think that it, Alito comes from a particular position on, um, you know, LGBT marriage rights that I would, I would probably disagree with him on. Um, however, the, when the court looks at previous court decisions to determine precedent, what they're looking at is what's actually written in the opinion, not 
oh, well, what did Sam Alito think at the time that he was writing this? Um, and the language in this draft decision is explicit that this is referring to abortion because it is distinct from other privacy rights, whether you believe in these privacy rights um, that they are found in the Constitution or not, or if they're just good in and of themselves and they're not explicitly in the Constitution, or they are, or whatever. Um, I think it's important to note that they it is very different um, than than these other rights because they have the question of this unborn human being. Um, I think that these past couple of weeks since the decision has leaked, I, I've seen from pundits and the media and you know people on social media a lot of fear mongering about different things. I think that this kind of LGBT rights has been one that. Um, that's been particularly effective in scaring people about this draft decision. Um, I think also, um, you know, misinformation about miscarriage um, and particular like miscarriage management uh, mm -hmm. procedures that may be necessary. Yeah, pregnancies, things that um, people do have, I think legitimate fears about um, it, because they've been told by the media um, and by the abortion industrial complex that pro-life Americans are trying to criminalize things like miscarriage and treatment for eptoptic pregnancies, which is just not true. Um, I think every, every once in a while there's like a fringe legislator that doesn't know what he's doing. There was one in Ohio once that, um, that it, it, it made it into a bill that uh, treatment for eptoptic pregnancy, though it wouldn't be illegal, like it said something like, ideally, this would be the the embryo would be reimplanted in the womb, which at this point, there's not really the medical technology for that to happen anyway. So the only um, treatment for eptoptic pregnancy includes ending the life or the or the child's life um, ending as a result in order to save the life of the mother, which I have never met a pro-life person who actually opposes that. Um, I've never met a pro-life person who opposes um, DNCs for miscarriages for children who have already died. Um, however, we see this fear mongering and propaganda from a lot of people in the media and the abortion industrial complex in order to intimidate people into thinking that the status quo is kind of this neutral, um, human-centered way of legislating abortion. But the reality is that the status quo is egregious. We In this country, we have two, over 2,000, about 2,500 individual children being killed every day by abortion. Like this, it, it is extremist. We have abortion post-viability in many states in this country, totally legal with, you know, not even talking about like medically indicated ones um, where, you know, the the woman's health may be in danger or the child may. Which we know the majority of post-viability abortions are elective and not done to uh, save the life of the mother or because of um, uh, fetal non compatibility with life or something like that. Yeah. I, so I, I think that basically these past couple of weeks have been an exercise for me sort of in on the front lines, talking to people outside the court at protests and on social media and speaking to the media. It's really just been an exercise in correcting a lot of misinformation. Um, I mean, pl plenty of people 
still believe that overturning Roe will make abortion illegal. Like that's that's just not true. It will um, it will send the issue back to the states and legislators will be able to listen to their constituents who want abortion to be illegal in those states and legislate accordingly. Um, although we know that the the abortion issue will still be extremely important in in many states that um, that seem to be signaling that they not only are going to continue to have sort of extremist um, post-viability abortion laws, um, but they're actually trying to become sanctuary cities for abortion where they are putting taxpayer money into getting people from other states into their states in order to get abortions there. Um, and so I, the people, I think, on both sides, there's just not a lot of um, clarity about exactly what this decision means if it if it even comes down if it comes down in this way um, we've seen the pro-abortion movement trying to actively intimidate the justices into changing their minds we've seen it you know through protests including outside the homes of these justices um, explicitly telling them you know we're not going to accept this decision you need to change your mind um, i'm hopeful that you know, Alito and, and Kavanaugh and Tony Barrett and the rest of them aren't successfully intimidated. And I, I don't think they will be. Um, but I think that it's important right now that we as pro-lifers push back against that narrative, that we show the reality of the pro-life movement, which was which is that we are a movement that exists to protect human rights and to serve pregnant people, um, and in particular, low-income women who face, um, you know, difficult pregnancy circumstances, and, and and make it clear that we are standing with them, that, you know, the abortion industrial complex for years has pushed this narrative that abortion is needed, that violence is needed in order to have equality or liberation or, um, as uh, Yellen recently said, you know, it needed for the economy, um, which is truly shocking. Which um, is like, that's some evil I think capitalist I, propaganda. I, yeah, I mean, exactly. Yeah, it's wild to me just the blatant illiteracy in the general public about what abortion laws in the United States actually are compared to abortion laws in the entire rest of the world, including, uh, you know, the established social democracies of Western Europe, like a country, for example, like uh, Sweden, where uh, abortion is uh, permitted up to the first, I can't remember if it's 12 or 14 weeks, but like throughout Europe, there are uh, limits on, on abortion that are less than the law that is being challenged in the Supreme court from Mississippi. So like you can talk about the differences in like access, for example, where in the United States, you have to pay for abortions out of pocket, um, except for in the largest states that commit the most abortions, like California, New York, that are 
covered by Medicare. Um, and in which case it is socializing. You don't have to pay out of pocket if you are under a certain income level. Um, but for most of Europe, most of the world, uh, the, the weak limits on abortion are already much like much more than any type of limits are tolerated at all in the United States without having like a massive up, uh, a massive uproar about it. Yeah. I I think that the majority of EU countries in particular, 12 weeks is the limit for elective abortion. Yes. I, somebody, uh, Somebody who I, I like and follow on Twitter said something uh, a while ago about, oh, Greece is a really interesting example that it's a, a socially conservative religious country where um, abortion is uh, legal and publicly funded and then an asterisk up to 12 weeks. And I was like, you realize that uh, the Mississippi law puts a 15 week limit on abortion, right? Like there, there's just a complete disconnect from reality of what abortion law currently is in the United States, a complete disconnect from reality about what overturning Roe would actually do, which once again, would not make abortion illegal in the United States. It would return to the status quo that it was before 1973, where the states could uh, like through their own democratic legislatures decide themselves, you know, before an unelected body of uh, nine male justices decided that, uh, nope, this is just the law now. Um, In the article that I'm writing for Rehumanize right now, I also point out that uh, the legalization of abortion pretty closely followed um, the urban uprisings of the sixties in the civil rights movement. Um, and like it, the, the debate out of New York, especially is pretty like blatant. They're like, yeah, we hope that we'll be able to reduce the amount of, uh, births on, um, to unwed mothers and, uh, to people on welfare. Um, and then like other than, um, states like New York and California, um, the other states that were taking up row or that were taking up um, the liberalization of abortion law before um, Roe was decided were the states in the South that were in the process of basically getting reprimanded for their uh, sterilization laws that were horrible and uh, found to be illegal um, and basically just replacing sterilization laws with abortion. So it was not like a bunch of liberal states. It was Republican California, Republican New York, and the South that were the states that were uh, liberalizing abortion before Roe just came and undid everything. Yeah. Undid the entire I I think that point about um, that we all know that the sort of rise of the abortion movement was uh, very much led by the leaders in the eugenics movement um, in the, in the, uh, at that time. And I, I think that the, that point you made about, you know, reducing, you know, it was, cl- it was clearly racial and it was clearly ableist. Um, but I think the, the 
the class-based nature of it too is so important. Like you said, like we want to limit the amount of people on welfare um, and, and their ability to continue having children because that is more children that need you know, state support. And I, I think that we talk about that as, you know, as kind of a memory of the past that now the abortion rights movement has really um, situated itself on the left and as a movement, you know, for social justice and for women's rights um, and for health healthcare justice, um, which is, you know, to us, we're appalled by because we know that abortion is, is an act of violence. And so it doesn't really make sense in that context. Um, but they sort of no longer lead with eugenics first rhetoric. Um, however, in these past couple of weeks, when I have been talking to people, you've been on the seeing ground, the eugenic rhetoric pop out on social media yes. and just like in comments, yeah. like it's blatant. Yeah. In person too. And I, and in, I, I'm not great at the, at the, the discourse on social media. Um, I, I have a, a difficult time talking to people behind a screen because I think that, you know, it, it's just not my calling. Um, I'm much better at face-to-face -face conversation. Um, and I, because I think that it, it's happened multiple times because when we were out there in front of the court, about half the time, you know, people really came up to us and they saw our signs with secular pro-life messaging and consistent life ethic messaging and, um, you know, sort of liberal leaning or left leaning pro-life messaging. And they came up to us and they were really surprised and interested, actually interested in what we had to say. Um, and so I think that for a lot of people, their guard was down a little bit when they were discussing this. And I heard so many people explicitly say, you know, bring up things like, well, our tax dollars are going to have to pay for all of these children born if abortion is is illegal. And it's like, um, and yeah, good. They should have been doing that anyways. Well, so but my thing, Emiliano, is that what when they would say that, Almost every time I would say, wait, do you really mean, do you really mean that? Do you really have a problem with poor people having more children? And they would sort of think about it for a moment and then, and then say, oh no, no, not, not if they want to. I don't mind if my tax dollars are paying for, you know, things like WIC and, and, and good programs that help, um, you know, mothers and children and, and low income families. However, in the back of their mind, they've sort of been told that that's one of the reasons that they need abortion. And I think that, or that we need abortion as a country, um, more particularly, usually that poor women need abortion. Um, but I think that I, it, it's interesting that that messaging is more subliminal now and that most of the people who are using it, I don't think actually mean it. I, I think that most of these people are actually sort of liberal minded and they, they, they are not, they are not actual eugenicists, but they have that sort of implicit bias against poor people having children um, that, that they haven't sufficiently unlearned yet um, because that eugenic rhetoric isn't at the forefront of the movement because they know it's embarrassing and they know it's something that they, you know, the leaders of the movement know that they need to hide it behind the euphemism of choice. Well, and I think you see lots of middle-aged and older people still using that, like more readily using that rhetoric because that was the rhetoric until probably like, like the early two thousands. Yeah. Like that, they, they didn't catch on to like, Oh, maybe 
we're being a little bit too racist, too obviously racist and classist in our messaging until like probably, I, I mean, the, the, the coalition that f- formed uh, of the Democratic Party of being like, like liberal international capitalists with um, like some select human rights groups or like kind of issue based groups like that wasn't that wasn't uh and kind of like leaving uh unions and workers in the dust like that wasn't really fully complete until the late 90s or early 2000s so like the just the material conditions for that coalition where they would have to change their rhetoric to not be explicitly racist or eugenicist like wasn't there until relatively recently So what have you felt like has been your experience sort of in your kind of personal life and in an online with the reaction to this decision, I guess, both from pro-abortion people in your life and from pro-life people? Um, so I have been kind of uh, reticent to comment directly on, I mean, the my most of my interactions now with Americans are on social media. Um, so I've been kind of cautious to say anything, uh, directly on social media because I've been like, everyone is just kind of just blatantly repeating misinformation right now. Um, and, uh, should I wait to let people be less mad for a little bit or like, does it like, you know, there are studies on this where, you know, uh, responding to factually incorrect information with factually correct information to somebody who is just mad about something doesn't correct them. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I've just kind of been watching and on the one hand, very, very proud of not just rehumanize and other um, kind of consistent life ethic groups, but also like even um, a lot of the uh, more conservative pro-life groups that uh, I, you know, agree with on abortion, but, you know, might not agree with on a lot of other things. Um, I've been very encouraged by a lot of uh, their um, statements and I uh, rehumanized signed on to a a letter that was uh, promoted by a a whole huge spectrum of pro-life groups, um, you know, saying if if Roe is overturned and abortion um, at some point does become illegal again that uh we do not want to see uh like women charged for crimes um and so i think that has been well pregnant people charged for crimes or people who abortion charged for crimes if a woman is an abortionist then she should be charged with the crime of killing yeah 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 (laughs) So clarify the, that exactly so so preg- pregnant people who uh choose to have an abortion um uh, 
who acquire an abortion um, should not be the ones who are facing the the legal penalties of it. Um, and just kind of general, very strong reaffirmations of, you know, love them both. Um, we're here for the, the woman and the child. Um, and, uh, counteracting a lot of the very kind of negative and hysterical misinformation that is being promoted by the other side. And then there's, then there's the other side, you know, I run in a lot of leftist circles and things like that, that, uh, to see them kind of promoting this, the type of classist and racist propaganda um, that is justifiable when talking about abortion and completely against everything that they stand for everything every other time has just been very annoying, discouraging um, for me, especially since I gave up social media for Lent. And this is like the first thing that happens like right after I get back onto social media and I'm like, uh, Oh, I don't want to, I don't want to see you guys. Um, but yeah, uh, just kind of a lot of, um, nervous waiting, I guess for me. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, You know, I'll agree. I think that I have pretty impressed with the kind of traditional mainstream pro-life movement in this moment. Um, I think that there could be a tendency among some people or groups to want to take this moment to kind of gloat. Um, Cause the reality is like, we won, like we're, we're winning. It looks like we're about, we're about to have a major victory in terms of the amount of organizing and work that has gone into, you know, creating a reality where this could be possible. Um, I mean, it's, a so good, I think it's that, like an undeniably good thing. And I do think like there's absolutely room for, you know, healthy celebration um yeah exactly and i think and i think i've seen that i've seen a healthy celebration um and i haven't seen and i've seen from from most pro-life organizations and leaders really taking this moment to lead with compassion and i appreciate that because i think that like we've been talking about right now misinformation and and really disinformation about what it will look like in a post-Roe America is rampant. Um, And I think that there are a lot of fears. I think that there's a lot of fear-mongering going on. And as a result, a lot of people in this country um, who have the capacity to get pregnant are scared when they're being told by people who they look up to that if you have a miscarriage, you could go to jail um, or that it, it, perhaps certain procedures like DNA for, you know, miscarriage or DNC for a miscarriage could be um, could be criminalized and therefore unavailable. And so you might die of sepsis for, you know, the, the crime of, of your child dying a, a natural death before they're born. Um, and I think that I, I have been impressed with pro-life leaders sort of calmly being able to respond to this information, this misinformation and show them that, no, that's not what we're doing. Um, I think that this letter that I am proud to have signed on to from National Right to Life that very explicitly says, not only do we not want laws that criminalize um, people for their pregnancy outcomes, uh, 
we, not only do we just hope that's not the case, but we as pro-life leaders are going to work to ensure that is not the case. You know, we have connections with anti-abortion legislators and we're willing to hold their feet to the fire to ensure that our values of truly loving them both aren't ignored in favor of a, a sort of um, retributive um, prosecutorial mindset of just wanting to to punish people who are in desperate situations and feel like abortion is their only option or people who have the, you know, the horrible, unfortunate reality of, of, of a miscarriage. Um, and I think that I have been, you know, excited to be able to work with a diverse coalition of pro-life people from, you know, all different sorts of backgrounds and across the entire political spectrum who've been able to come together and say, no, this work isn't over, right? All Roe does is turn it back to the states. And so, of course, the work isn't over because there's going to be plenty of states where abortion will still be legal and preborn children will not be protected. So we're going to need to continue to work on making legislative change. But also our work isn't over because half of what the pro-life movement does isn't legislative at all. It's about serving pregnant people in our communities and serving young families and young pregnant, uh, young, preg uh, sorry, young parenting people, um, young parents, so that they don't feel like abortion is their only option. And I think that the pro-life movement has been doing that over these past few weeks. You know, this decision hasn't even been final yet. Um, but, you know, throughout this time, there's still people in our communities who need our support. And so throughout all this time, pregnancy centers have still been operating. Maternity homes have still been operating. We've seen, I've been out on the sidewalk in front of abortion clinics doing the regular um, sidewalk outreach that I do and that I encourage everyone to do if you have an abortion clinic in your community, um, which you likely do if you live in the United States, um, that you know, this work is is still needed, regardless of if the decision comes out the way we want it to or not. Like the 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 goal of actually making abortion unthinkable is something that is serious to pro life leaders and pro life community members. And I think that I have been heartened to see that that work hasn't been just totally forgotten because we've had the we've had this victory or it appears as though we're about to have a victory within the next two months i think uh just as the pro-life movement has gotten more internationalized and less focused on just the united states um especially with in the wake of some pretty devastating losses in ireland across latin america um i think they're like the experiences of leaders there who are like oh, we waited until way too late to start organizing this and assuming that just because the law was on our side, then we didn't have to have a mass movement behind us. And so I think there is definitely some good promise, I think, in the reaction of pro-life organizations across the spectrum to um, the leak uh, that, oh, like, even if we, like, quote-unquote, win in this this time like that doesn't mean that we're just going to you know pack it up anymore um because one legislatively there's still other uh there's still other battles to fight across like literally every 50 states um but uh yeah that there 
are social aspects to the pro-life work that still need to be done and still people that still need to be advocated for. Um, and I think, yeah, that's kind of what caught Latin America by surprise is just that, you know, all you need is a majority of judges, mm-hmm. um, one time basically to, to implement, uh, abortion laws. And if you're not ready for it, then you're going to get taken off guard and organizing after the fact is too late. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, in terms of our work not being done, just look at the mission of rehumanize. Like, Even if the decision came down and abortion was illegal across the United States, um, you know, there, there of course would be all of that work of still supporting pregnant people in our communities, but our work as a consistent life ethic movement, like that's only one issue to tick off the list. We still have war and the death penalty and police brutality and torture and, and, and euthanasia um, and all forms of violent discrimination and abuse. So I think, I, I think that this continues to be a moment of celebration. Well, and a moment of optimistic celebration because we're hopeful that the decision will come out sooner than later. Um, probably around June, the end of June. Um, but, you know, the the moment of celebration really can only be a short moment before we get back to work. Um, I know, you know, even at the Rehumanized team, we're sort of planning out our summer and this Dobbs decision being up in the air makes planning things hard because we know that if the decision does come out on a random Monday, we're going to need to mobilize immediately and get all of our supporters out there to continue representing and doing this work um, and demonstrating for, you know, for the unborn and for this movement. Um, But we also have plenty of other stuff that we're doing this summer, um, even outside of abortion. We have two anti-war conferences that we are, um, you know, partnering with and, and, uh, and participating in. We have an anti-death penalty week of action um, that's going to be, if Roe v. Wade gets, or if the Dobbs decision gets decided at the end of June, when we think it will be, um, that next day, I'm going to start the uh, an anti-death penalty week of action, um, which is going to be a total whirlwind because I'm sure that things will be very busy picking up after the Dobbs decision does finally come out. Um, so all of this to say that there there just is so much work to be done um, on all of these issues. And so, yes, take this moment to celebrate, but more importantly, figure out what it is that you can be doing within this movement or within other movements or within your own community to serve the needs that, that aren't being met um, and to advocate for justice for to advocate for justice and for human rights for all human beings. Yeah. So you've been doing a lot of uh, talking to the media, talking to counter protesters, or I don't know, maybe you guys are considered the counter protesters. Um, uh, (laughs) What, uh, what, how do you talk to people? Um, uh, this is something that I'm usually great at, but I have found myself like, not like, I, I don't think that I would be able to, I, I feel like I won't be able to 
help the narrative very much right now while it feels so heated and charged. But then I ask myself, you know, will I ever be able to say anything again? Because like, it's always going to be heated and charged now during this entire battle. So like for, I, I think it's going to be very uncomfortable for especially people um, in either more liberal or leftist pro-life groups or in the consistent life ethic um, where probably like we have a lot like the majority of our friends are, you know, other liberal leftist people who are pro-choice. Um, like, what do we do? How do we, how do we like bring this up um, uh, when it's so just heated, but also just filled with disinformation? Yeah. So I think it, it, it depends heavily on context. I think that I have been having a lot of very sort of high conflict conversations lately because I've been out, you know, doing this kind of rehumanizing discourse with the people who are passionate enough to show up to a protest for abortion. Um, and so I think that those conversations are going to be a, a lot different than people than conversations with people who you might have already in your life. Um, so I can say for the conversations that I've had, it's been really important to take a breath um, and to actually listen to what the other side is saying. I think that I have had people come up to me and, you know, sort of come up to me and some of the the people in our team who have been, you know, holding signs and demonstrating in these these moments of more calm during protests or even after protests um, when things are, are dying down and come up and say, Hey, I really just want to talk. I want to hear your perspective. And then they ask me, you know, well, why are you against abortion? And I begin speaking and I say, well, so I believe that it should be illegal to kill human beings. And the scientific consensus is that, and then I can't even begin to sort of, you know, make my argument for why I'm anti-abortion, which, you know, if you want the the totality of, you can go to rehumanizeintl.org slash abortion. But essentially that, you know, the scientific community is out of consensus. We see that the unborn is undeniably a human being. They are living, they are whole, they are genetically distinct. And I believe it should be illegal to kill human beings. And I see abortion as, you know, a, a part of that. And so it should be illegal. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of other nuance that you need to have in the conversation, but that's kind of my, my main pitch that I make to start the conversation. Um, but I have found that in, in probably most of the conversations that I've had, I'm not even able to get out a fifth word in my main argument before, you know, the person who approached me to have a conversation sort of snaps back and starts yelling at me what about rape? What about miscarriage? What about this? You think women should go to jail. You think this, you, Donald Trump said this, you, your movement says this, um, sort of like a lot of, you know, just sudden reactions that I think are caused by, um, pain and fear because of, you know, the misinformation and the perception that they have of the pro-life movement. And so it's been really important for me to, to, really not kind of snap back in the way that might be natural to me when someone is 
you know, lying about me to my face, saying that I voted for Donald Trump and I support all these policies that I don't support and that I that I do this and that I yada yada. Um, you know, it's easy for me to want to say, no, I didn't. Shut up. You're wrong. Um, but I've had to remind myself that these people um, often are coming from a place of, of fear and of a really serious distrust for the pro-life movement. Um, and so I think that listening to their concerns and affirming their concerns has been important in, in this moment. Um, you know, for the people who, I, I tell you, the criminalization of miscarriage has come up in 100% of the conversations that I have had with people on the ground. Um, and so I don't know if that's actually reflective of this wider moment, but I, I, I think that it, it's really been telling to me um, and I, I think I sort of have seen pro-life people online respond to that kind of thing with like an eye roll emoji, like, oh, come on, no one wants to criminalize miscarriage, like, you know, kind of di diminishing their concerns um, and talking over them. Um, and I, I, I and I believe, you know, that's just not a very nice way to communicate with people, but it, it's also less effective um, because I, I have had these conversations where, you know, if someone tells me I am really concerned that I'm going to have a miscarriage and then not be able to, you know, ha have that child removed in a, a DNC procedure or in, you know, whatever needs to be done, or I'm going to have an ectopic pregnancy and uh, it's going to be illegal for me to, um, it's going to be illegal to get treatment for that, which will lead to my death. Like that is a real fear that a lot of women have um, based on the misinformation that they've been fed uh, from the, the abortion industrial complex and from the, the media on this. And so I think that hearing them out and actually listening to them um, and sort of nodding along and making it clear, like, yeah, no, that, that is really scary. I'm really sorry that, that, that you're afraid of that. And then once they, you know, sort of tire themselves out at yelling at you from yelling at you about that, um, responding, can I let you know, like ask, actually asking them, can I let you know what I think about that? And actually what the laws that have been proposed and what the trigger laws that are already on the books and are going to go into effect once Roe is overturned. Can I tell you what those actually say? I, I hear that you're very scared and I, I want to let you know that we in the pro-life movement don't want that and that our legislators don't want that and that if there ever are legislators who are working to do things like criminalize treatment of ectopic pregnancies or miscarriage management that we will be with you and that we are with you in saying absolutely not we never want a person to go to jail for experiencing the loss of their child whether it's through you know an ectopic pregnancy that needs to be um ended or through a natural miscarriage or through, you know, one of those other um, thing, th procedures that can be called abortions by certain medical companies. But when we're talking, when the pro-life movement is talking about abortion, we're talking about elective abortions in which we are intentionally ending the life of a living human child in order to the 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 term in romance languages to just be like a lot clearer so it's in spanish and french um it's um voluntary interruption of pregnancy yeah. that that um, is my because that that is the heart of a lot of issues yeah in spanish um aborto means any any like premature ending of a pregnancy natural or unnatural so like the um 
the, the the legal language and like the the language that is officially used I think lots of times actually more in Europe than in Latin America where like American influence has allowed like the word just aborto abortion to like um, be the, the main word. And then also like with all of the confusions that come along with it, because abortion aborto means everything rather than interrupción voluntario de embarazo. Uh, or it's like it's equivalent in French, which is like what the laws actually say but like that in like it uses the the um the abbreviation ive uh and like that i feel just linguistically gives a lot more clarity about you know what the what the actual procedure that we are discussing is yeah yeah because that is i think these linguistic differentiations are extremely important and often overlooked by pro-life people. Because I think that I, I know people who have had a natural miscarriage and then they are totally disturbed and upset to find that when they get a bill back from the hospital, it says that they had an abortion because technically speaking um, for a lot of insurance companies and in the medical field, natural miscarriages are spontaneous abortions and then the the kind of natural stigma that is attached to abortion um and and of course there should be a stigma against abortion because it is an act of violence um that stigma is carried over to women who have natural miscarriages um which there should be no stigma about like that's just a horrible natural death and you know we mourn with them um and so i think that the abortion industry and the sort of pundits who push pro-abortion rhetoric, they intentionally take that confusion and that unfortunate linguistic um, situation where there isn't a clear word for elective abortion for a reason not to save the life of the mother. Um, and that the pop, pop in pop culture, we mainly just call that abortion. Um, they take that and they intentionally stoke that fear and try to push the narrative that pro-life people want to criminalize things like treatment for eptoptic pregnancy and miscarriage or stillbirth. Um, and I think that, you know, to finish my earlier thought, what is important right now is correcting that misinformation but doing so in a compassionate way that recognizes yeah, if you believe that people are trying to criminalize miscarriage, that is really scary. I can understand why you are screaming at me right now and you're so upset with me if you really think that's what I believe. Let me demonstrate to you how that isn't true. Um, and let me commit to you that I'm on your side when it comes to this issue um, and that I am going as a pro-life leader, I am going to work to ensure that no legislator thinks that it is ever appropriate to criminalize these pregnancy outcomes. Um, and so I think that that has been really important, like getting past that, those, those initial fears and reservations about overturning Roe v. Wade before I can really actually talk about my position on abortion, which of course is that it is an act of violence and that it should be illegal. Um, but you have to be able to get people to that place where they are ready for 
you know, the kind of difficult work of re-examining, you know, your deeply held political views on on this issue. Um, and you need to get them to trust you that you, you know, you are not this caricature of you know, the, the evil right-wing legislator in Texas who just wants to send women to jail for having abortions or for having miscarriages or for, um, you know, whatever. Um, I, I think that this moment for me has really been about de-escalating a lot of conversations mm-hmm. um, and reminding myself and, and honestly reminding them sometimes like that we're all just people here, that... I have a particular political position and you have a particular political position. I do not think that you are evil for supporting abortion. I think that most people who support abortion deeply care about the rights of women and people who can get pregnant and that they are concerned for their well-being. Um, and I think that most of them haven't considered enough about the rights of the unborn child. And I think that our work is often you know, educating them about the science of embryology and fetal development and the reality of what takes place during an abortion procedure and the horror that takes place during that act of violence. Um, But, you know, making it clear to them that I don't think that they're stupid or evil for disagreeing with me on this. I think it's likely that they may be misinformed and that um, they may be repeating misinformation um, and correcting it when necessary but that I think that we should be able to come together and find common ground. I mean, things like how to better support pregnant and parenting people, whether or not abortion is illegal. Um, and, and those sort of, you know, public policies as well as private charity and, and the different work that needs to be done in order to create a culture of life where regardless of if abortion is legal or not, people are supported in their pregnancies and in their choice to to choose life. Um, And I think that highlighting common ground and working with people um, to to really rehumanize this discourse and to rehumanize, you know, people on the other side of the aisle, whether that is, you know, the pro-abortion person or their perception of us as pro-life people has been the primary goal. I think that I haven't had a lot of really strong like pro-life conversions um, in this moment because tensions are so high. However, I have, and, I, and I've seen my team members who are out and you know even better at me, even better than me at doing this discourse, um, at talking to these people and I'm seeing them plant seeds that at least can sort of give people a little bit of ease that we are not slipping into some sort of handmaid's tale dystopia where, um, you know, women are going to be oppressed and, um, you know, all of our privacy rights and all of our, our rights are under attack that the people standing on the other side of the issue than you, if you're a pro abortion person are justice minded, they're deeply concerned about the rights of children. And they are also deeply concerned about the well-being and welfare of their parents um, and, and looking for those places where we can come together and support people. Um, again, and I keep saying sort of like regardless of if abortion is on the table or not, because whether or not abortion is legal, those needs are still going to be there. Um, and I think that we, we need to, as pro-life people especially, 
recommit ourselves in this moment to the service that we already do um, for people in those difficult pregnancy circumstances. Yeah. Um, and also, like, it's frustrating to me because I think this could be, and, you know, we're doing the work, you're doing the work more on the ground than I am. Um, I'm just sitting at my computer and writing blog posts. Um, uh, that helps. <laughs> I keep t- I keep mentioning this, but everybody watch out for my upcoming um, uh, thorough economic analysis of the function of abortion to the capitalist class um, and how it relates to the uh, racist policies of incarceration and defunding of the welfare state after the 1970s. Um, but like this the thing that frustrates me is that this could be a moment to discuss, you know, if the media wanted to be honest, how, uh, you know, like, what is it? 70% of people, uh, they always cite that two thirds of people want, uh, Roe to be upheld. Um, they don't cite that, you know, when you actually explain the trimester system, like two thirds of people support putting, uh, a limit on abortion to the end of the first trimester. And that which and, prevents, which Roe prevents explicitly. Um, uh, for those of you don't, who don't know, um, Roe makes, uh, abortion, uh, effectively legal throughout all, well, Roe and then Casey effectively makes, uh, abortion legal throughout all nine months of pregnancy um, definitely, uh, up until the end of the second trimester. And then after that, um, basically state by state. Um, and so that, that is like wildly out of step with public opinion, um, which generally sees like even people who consider themselves, um, just kind of I would say like naturally or apolitically pro-choice of like, uh, we shouldn't mess with people too much. Um, the end of the first trimester is where people tend to draw the line of when it's permissible to have abortion, which is also incidentally, um, the line that most European countries draw. Um, so like rather than like allowing us to have a, a discourse in which we acknowledge like the broad overlap. Um, like let's say like two thirds of what we're saying, like most people agree on. Um, it's just like this hyper partisan, like narrowing in on a very tiny, uh, minority of cases and a very tiny minority of what people think is allowable Mm -hmm. and permissible. You had a much more hopeful wrapping up to this <laughs> than I did. No, it's okay. I, I mean, I, I think the whole thing is hopeful. I think that like right now we're kind of, you know, it's it's easy to kind of get in the weeds of exactly what next steps are, but this is a very hopeful moment. Like I think that life wins. I think that, you know, I, I'm never going to forget sort of, being, I was in an Airbnb with a bunch of pro-life friends already, um, 
and we were actually making signs for a different thing, like a, a different pro-life event that we were planning that had to be canceled and, and I guess postponed um, because then the decision was leaked and suddenly we had to respond to that instead. Um, but, you know, being surrounded by, you know, this community of pro-lifers, you know, I, I was with people, someone was as young as I think 20 years old. And then there was also a 16 year old that joined us later that night. Um, and then as old as someone who I believe was like 74. Um, and then, you know, just seeing this totally diverse group of people, um, come together when I think I was the first person to get the news because Maria Oswald, who is just chronically online, um, sent me the link because uh, she saw it immediately and sent it to me. And so I read it and I think I read it and I didn't really understand it until I was like halfway through the article exactly what the implications of this were. And so I said it out loud and then sent it to everyone in the room and we all silently read the article for, um, you know, about five minutes. And then we were like, okay, so we got to get to the court. Um, and so I think like since then, I, I really have been in this kind of moment of, again, celebration and joy and jubilation that finally it looks like we're going to see some justice for the 63 million plus children who have been killed by the abortion regime in this country. Um, and so I think that you know, as we're going, as I've said, and we're going to have to keep saying and doing the work is not done. Um, but this is certainly a moment of incredible joy and hope. Um, and I am excited to, to be a part of it with all of my, all of my friends and all of the people in my life who have, you know, like, you know, Mike, who was there and was in his seventies who have been working on this, some of them for like 50 years to see this moment um, and to be there. And, you know, like I'm, I'm a bandwagoner. I've only been in the movement for like six years and I, I get to be on the winning side. So that rocks. Um, but to, to, to be with this community of justice minded, human centered human rights activists who are seeing a victory. I mean, it's, it, it, it is a moment of extreme joy and extreme hope Um and, you know, of course, the work doesn't end here and we and we need to um, continue, you know, this fight in, you know, on many fronts. But overall, optimism, joy, et cetera. And so that's a that's a happy thought to end <laughs> this episode of the Rehumanized podcast on. Um, I hope that we get it edited and out in time before Roe actually does come down, because Again, we don't exactly know when that's going to happen, um, which is such an interesting policy that like the Supreme Court just refuses to let us know when they release their their decisions. But my guess is that it's going to be in late June. Um, other people feel differently, but that, I'm I'm pretty sure it's going to be in late June. So don't quote me on that. But I I will we'll see. I guess. Amen. A woman, a, a, a them, a them, a they them. Um, I, I'm a they them. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, let's see what's going on. Let's see what is going on by the time that this podcast comes out. Because who knows? Um, I am just very, very grateful in this moment to. Uh, be really it seems like on the on the right side of history um uh, like right fighting for a just cause that looks like it's 
going to win, um, which is like not always. Uh, it, it's a really weird, really weird spot to be in sometimes <laughs> when you usually see uh, yourself like on the losing side lots of times. Um, and it's it's cool to not just be, you know, like treading water or, you know, trying to swim upstream, but actually going with the current of history. Um, so yeah. Uh, any other, any other thoughts before we close up? I don't think so. I think I'm exhausted. I think that I need a day or two cause I really, we have been going nonstop since this decision has come out. Um, and so I'm excited to sort of, to take a break, to take a breath, to look at um, a lot of the the work that we've put out, to find all of the interviews that I did outside the court that I um, that I haven't seen yet, um, and compile them, and to then um, to sort of get back to the work that we that we already have been doing. I know you said you're working on your um, article for Life Matters Journal and the Rehumanized blog, so hopefully that'll be out soon. I'm excited to see that. Um, I'm also just excited to to recommit myself to the other issues. Um, I think that in these past few weeks, this news has been so huge. And so abortion has been front and center in my mind. But during this time, there's been um, one execution and there has been one scheduled execution that just today as of recording was stayed. Um, And so I think that, you know, this work of the consistent life ethic movement is um, is ongoing, and I, we don't really have time to to take a break or get distracted by just one of these issues because um, you know the rest of the world is still moving, um, and there are there is work to be done on all of the many fronts that we uh, that we see as consistent life ethic activists, and so. My, my next step, the next thing I'm doing is I'm editing an article about the death penalty um, because that's that's the second thing on my mind after abortion. And then I'm sure there's going to be some horrible news about euthanasia or, uh, Biden or something just reinvited else. Yemen. Uh, sorry, Biden just reinvaded Somalia as well today. So Okay, I haven't been on Twitter <laughs> in the past couple hours, so I didn't even know that. And so I'm sure we're going to have to respond Whoa. to that. And- ongoing violence in Ukraine and NATO expansion and all of these things that we are, are deeply concerned about. Um, and so, but it is I, nice to have a win on like the thing that's just like the biggest numerically. Um, that's true. It's very nice. It's, it's, it's nice to have a win period yeah. where, where we see, you know, like you said, Oh, Biden invaded another country that I didn't even hear about because I, By, uh, for, uh, for all of the um, uh, listeners who are not fans of Trump, I, I including me um, uh, just, yeah. Uh, point out that Biden reinvaded a country that Trump pulled out from. So there is um, our little dose of late, late capitalist contradiction today. <laughs> Thank you, Emiliano. Um, so I think with that, I think it's clear that we have a bunch of work to do. So, we should sign off from the Rehumanized podcast and then go get to that work. Let's go do the work. All right. Or take a nap and then do the work. Take a nap and then do the work. Amen. All right. Thank you, Let's everyone, for listening. Peace.